I'm known as the worst pitch in the history of Shark Tank that still landed a deal. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, today we have Stefan Arsal, who's the CEO of Tower Paddleboards, which sells the best paddleboards, which attracted an investment from billionaire Mark Cuban on Shark Tank. Tower Paddleboards has been named as one of the top 10 success stories in Shark Tank history by Entrepreneur Magazine. Stefan, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me on the show, Eric. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So Tower Paddleboards is a uh, beach lifestyle company. We were founded in 2010. You know, I've, I've been an entrepreneur the past uh, 12 or 15 years. Um, I started uh, in a high-end poker chip company and then sort of have transitioned now into a paddleboard company. We're direct-to-consumer, so we sell boards at basically you know, half the price of you know, boards you'd buy in retail, and we've had a lot of success with that. Great. And how much are boards typically? I mean, a good board in retail is twelve to fifteen hundred dollars, and then you know we're selling boards for you know six hundred to a thousand bucks. How are you selling it for so much cheaper? Um, we just sort of direct to consumer, so we we're out of the distribution channel, so we don't have you know wholesalers and retailers. It's just you know we're manufacturing them and we're selling them direct to consumers, and so we use the same factories uh, that a lot of the uh, you know major brands use. Uh, we'll just go to that factory make boards and uh, sell them direct to consumers. So it's, it's the same board, just a much better deal. Huh, interesting. Okay. And why did you decide to get out of the poker chip business? Poker has a soft spot in my heart. Sure. Yeah. You know, I didn't get out of it so that I still have that business, but I started that in 2003 and there was a huge poker boom it was trending. So then I basically created the top high end, you know, poker chip site in the world called buypokerchips.com. But, you know, it was at the height of the boom, it was 10 times what it is today. Um, so, you know, these are poker chip sets that cost 500 to $1,500 for a home game. Um, so very niche, but it was a worldwide market. And uh, it just sort of that, that peaked and, and went down. And I basically figured out how to, you know, reduce my work week down from about 40 to 50 hours a week to working three days a week, four hours a day. And then I looked to start other businesses. And that's how... You know, there were, this was over a period of probably two, three, four years. Uh, I started a number of other businesses, not, nothing that really hit. And then uh, the paddle boards took off. And now, you know, we'll do $9 million this year. So it's, you know, 20 times what the poker chip business was. Awesome. So, yeah, you talked about being able to create a system where you're, you're going from 40 to 50 hours a week to, you know, a couple hours per week. You know, can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I had read Tim Ferriss's uh, four-hour workweek book. And basically, it was speaking directly to me as an internet entrepreneur. How to, you know, in the book is about how to get out of the corporate world and sort of go off on your own, and how to use outsourcers and do all of this, and really sort of take things that you think are non-negotiable off the table, and just really focus in on what twenty percent of your effort is creating eighty percent of your output. 
And, you know, at that time, it was a one-person company, the poker chip company. So I was the shipping guy, the customer service guy, the business, all of it, right? And I just figured out how to reduce my, you know, work week down. And, you know, I stopped shipping Tuesdays and Thursdays and stopped answering the phone Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then I didn't even work on that business Tuesday and Thursday. I just devoted solely to other stuff. And then pretty soon I was able to, you know, get rid of the afternoons, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the business wasn't suffering at all. Um, so it freed up my time to go, you know, for more important stuff. So it sounds like in the past it was maybe, maybe you're driven by, I have to do this, you know, everybody else is working. And then all of a sudden you just decided to cut out certain days and everything turned out to be okay. Well, I couldn't grow the poker chip business anymore. So I needed to start another business. And I had to, I had to carve out time to do that growing other businesses, you know, before the poker chip business died basically. Um, so it was sort of forced upon me, be efficient or you're going to, you're going to die here and you're going to have to go back into the corporate world. Um, that was basically it. Right. And I think you've carried that culture into, you know, being efficient into your, your workplace now, right? How's your company organized today? Yeah. So when we started this company, Tower Paddleboards, it was the first company where I had to hire employees. Uh, you know, about a, nine months into it, I had to hire my first employee in any business. And then we, re- we were on Shark Tank, uh, you know, six months later, and things just really took off. So I had to scale with a lot of employees. And I was still working this sort of, you know, it wasn't a strict, uh, you know, three days a week, four hours a day. Because now it was, we were in startup mode, but I was coming into the office, getting my work done and getting out of there. Um, but, you know, we were a startup. So, you know, the, the expectation was that everybody that came to work for me would work 50, 60 hour a week, uh, hiring them right out of college and, you know, not paying them much. And we were going to drive this thing forward. And we you know, were able to grow the company pretty quickly like that. Um, but I was trying to instill the same values. Like I literally hand a copy of the four hour work week to everybody that came to work here. And say we have a small team. We don't have a lot of cash behind us. We got to figure out how to do things better. So that's what we did from the beginning. We were, and then a year and a half ago, I made this formal within this company. Um, you know, we're a beach lifestyle brand, so we we sell paddleboards. We tell people like, look, you're working too much. Get out there, have fun, enjoy your friends, your family. You know, enjoy the outdoors. And here we are working like a startup. So we decided, hey, we're going to basically live our brand. I was already doing this, and I said, okay, so came in on June 1st of 2015 and said, okay, everybody, we're going to do a five-hour workday. Straight through, there's going to be no lunch. You're going to work 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then we're going to get out and we're going to enjoy our lives. Um, Everybody was on salary and we rolled out 5% profit sharing at the same time. So the net effect of this was it nearly doubled everybody's per hour earnings overnight without any increased cost to the company because we were just basically reducing the baseline of hours that this was required. Everybody was told, okay, here's the new deal. You know, you're getting your life back. Your work week is now better than most people's vacation week because you have one o'clock in the afternoon till 10, 11, whenever you go to bed every day of the week. And then you have your weekends. The ask is that you need to figure out how to get as much as you were doing before. And if you can't, you'll be fired. Wow. Okay. So how are you holding people accountable? How are you tracking people? I, I mean, you know, there's a lot tied to it. You have profit sharing and then people are, are working less. So how are you holding people accountable? Well, I mean, it was a big gift to, to everybody. And then it was, it was a big ask. So my, my theory before is that, you know, corporate America is really getting about two to three hours of work done, yet we're spending eight to 10 hours in the office. So how we track productivity is really in broad strokes. So we like, how profitable are we? You know, the year before we did this to the year after we did this, our revenues grew 42%. So all of a sudden we're working less and we're making more money. Our profits were up, I think it was 31% profits as a percent of, um, 
of revenue. So, you know, even more if you just look at, you know, net profit. All the metrics were going in the right direction and we were just working less. And I think what has happened and why entrepreneurs like myself are able to, you know, thrive in the current economy is because, you know, in the information age, there's just been this revolution of productivity. And it's not an incremental increase in, in productivity. It's a 10x change. And what's happened in corporate America is in the past 40 years, productivity in the U.S. is up 80% and wages are up 11%. Um, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, you know, workers are getting screwed here. Their productivity is up 80%. You're only getting 11% of increase in, in, in wages. But I look at that as an entrepreneur saying, are you crazy? Productivity is only up 80% in the last 40 years. If I look 30 years ago and I go into my mom's office and she managed a credit union, you know, like a bank, she was, and she was the top person there, her desk had a, had a typewriter and a phone that was attached to the wall. Um, that's just insane. Like what we can do now, everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket. We've got internet access. We can look up any piece of information. We can Skype across the world. There's all kinds of productivity tools and, you know, there's a, I wrote a book on the five-hour workday, and there's an associated website called fivehourworkday.com where you can get the first 50 pages of the book for free. But you can also download a PDF, a 30 or 40-page PDF that lists all of these productivity tools that we've identified at Tower that I've identified over the last you know dozen years and my staff has identified. And these are things that can save you millions of dollars in years of time. And these are productivity tools that nobody is using. And these are free or very cheap in a lot of cases. Um, so... By you know constraining your workday, it basically forces you to go out and find these productivity tools that nobody else is using. Entrepreneurs and sort of independent workers are thriving in today's economy because they're being rewarded by how much effort they put in and what the output is of that. And they're not being managed by the clock. And so they're identifying these productivity tools. Their productivity is up 10x. The average worker, productivity is up 80% over the last 40 years. And I'm, as a boss, I'm sort of pissed off about that. Like, why are you guys wasting your time and my time in the office? Let's work at a faster clip, figure out these productivity tools, and it's a better deal for everybody. So that's what this experiment is about. It's based on the hypothesis that the real amount of work getting done out there is two to three hours of work a day, and yet we're spending eight to ten hours a day, and the working hours are going longer and longer and longer, making people miserable. It's not helping the business. Cut the nonsense. Let's go down to a five-hour day. So if you had to pick only one productivity tool, what would it be? I mean, the ability of – Dropbox is a great tool. Um, like just the fact that all your files are accessible online and then accessible from your phone, from your laptop, from your desktop computer. It makes you productive, not just in your office. You know, where it used to be you go away on vacation, you sort of fall behind or you got to – you know, your computer crashes. You've got to get a new computer and you got to move all your files over. Um, you know, a lot of people use Dropbox, of course, but there's a lot of people that don't. And just that ability to, okay, it frees you up to work anywhere. That instantly raises productivity because the, the reason productivity is up is uh, essentially the assembly line of today that has been invented in the last you know, 30 years is the assembly line of information, of moving information around. It's gotten much quicker to move information around. And so you want to you know, sort of work a little bit every day, moving that information around. So if you can field a, an email on your phone at night, um, instead of waiting in the, until the next day, 12 hours later, that moves that piece of information along, especially if you're dealing with people overseas. The faster that information flow goes, the faster your, you know, the, your productivity goes. So anything you can do to, to do stuff like that will help. 
Love it. Okay. So what's working for you guys in terms of customer acquisition today? What's the most effective thing? Uh, we use search engine optimization. So the first three years of our business, we didn't spend a dime on advertising. And it was an intentional move. I mean, we were growing so fast that we really didn't need to advertise. But you know, we weren't like a lot of companies went out there and said, okay, let's go do Facebook ads. Let's go do pay-per-click online companies. Um, or even advertising magazines because we want to figure out how to get this traffic for free. And if we can figure out how to do that, we'll have created a hack. So again, and this is in terms of money, you've created a constraint and constraints breed creativity. This is why, you know, three guys in a garage in Silicon Valley can upset a hundred million dollar company that has, you know, a hundred or 500 workers and, you know, millions of dollars to throw at projects in today's, uh, you know, sort of age, you almost bet on the three guys in a garage every time because the larger companies don't have the constraints of time or money. So they're not looking for these creative solutions. They're not forced upon them. These three guys, they either die or they find a creative solution. And when they find that creative solution, it disrupts, you know, it becomes their competitive advantage. So that is in sort of the, the startup world, but these restraints or these sort of limitations can be set on time as well as money. So Constraints are a good thing in the startup world. So that's what we're really what we're doing with, you know, the five hour day as well. And that's that's what we, how we did with, you know, no advertising when we started the business. Great. And so, you know, a lot of people listening to this are, are from the tech world. And, you know, obviously yep. they're familiar with, uh, with with, you know, advertising and just, you know, pouring, uh, pouring uh, gasoline on the fire to grow things. So, you know, people don't often talk about SEO. And I, I'm just curious, you know, on, on the SEO portion, not a lot of people same thing. They don't talk a lot about link building. So how are you guys acquiring more links or how did you acquire links in the beginning to, you know, rank higher for certain uh, keywords? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty basic process. You, you basically have to have some compelling value proposition. Search engine optimization has boiled down to PR now. And if you want to do good PR, the first thing you have to do is you have to have a story. You have to have something that is compelling to talk about. If you don't, it doesn't matter how good your PR team is. It's just not going to work, right? And it's the same thing with marketing. Like if your product is, um, you know, an unnotable sort of piece of crap in general or just sort of ho-hum, it doesn't matter how good your marketers are. It's going to be an uphill battle the whole way. Now, on the other hand, if you figure out some incredible value proposition or some incredible product, the marketing does itself, right? So the first thing is, you know, we identified the paddleboard market. These boards were ridiculously expensive, and it was like, well, why don't we just cut out all these chains? We'll go direct to consumers. We'll give them the same product for half price. That's a good value proposition. That's a noteworthy value proposition. It's not unique to paddleboards, obviously. Everybody is going sort of direct to consumer now, and that's the chunk of retail that is growing while traditional retailers are you know, shuttering their doors. Um, so you have that value proposition, and then you create a lot of content about that. You basically tell your story, and then you go out, and you, you know, articles publish about that story and get links back to you. So great product write about that story, and then, uh, you know, go get links. Can you give us an example? Um, a good example is sort of the, the five-hour workday book. It wasn't my intent to write a book uh, called The Five-Hour Workday. Um, I was just going to roll out The Five-Hour Workday in my company because we were using this as a recruitment and retention strategy for our employees. But, you know, I occasionally write articles in, you know, Inc. Magazine or Fast Company or um, mashable. And so I wrote an article on what we were doing, just our five-hour workday. We're doing this little experiment, a three-month experiment in the summer, and we're going to roll back in the fall. And I wrote that article for Mashable, and I got 15,000 social shares, So, which is a lot, right? Like usually an article that I'll write will get 50 social shares if it's a great article. 
And so this resonated with people. So I knew we had something that was, okay, people want to talk about this. This is of interest to people. There is a huge discussion about work-life balance in America. You know, 80% of workers are basically unsatisfied with their job. The idea of compressing that workday really appeals to people. And I think people in general just understand this concept that, yeah, we're getting about two to three hours of work done in a 10-hour day, but, you know, who cares? They should be pissed off about this. So um, I said, okay, how do we how do we maximize this from a you know a marketing standpoint? Okay, well, write a long form you know book on the topic. Really explain what you're doing, and you know we're going to put a book in every you know paddleboard that we sell, and so we'll get you know ten fifteen thousand of these out there into circulation. Word should spread. People will you know write stories about what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing, and it's just we sort of backed into this. It was very opportunistic, but. You know, that's not even the product that we sell. That's just, hey, here's what we're doing. This is of interest. You guys should hear about this. And it's, you know, it's getting a ton of, uh, you know, press and links. And it's, it's really telling our brand story very authentically. Love it. Yeah. Interesting story. Interesting title as well. It's sure to be a hit, right? So I want to shift over to your Shark Tank experience. I remember watching sure. that episode. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I'm known as the worst pitch in the history of Shark Tank that still landed a deal. <laughs> so I, I, and actually Shark Tank called me out of the blue, uh, because we were, um, you know, a paddleboard company, which was sort of a hip hop, hot sport, uh, back at the time. And I mean, it still is, uh, but it was really trending right then. And then we did it differently than everybody in the industry. And when you went to our website in, you know, five seconds, you could figure out, okay, what's their value proposition. They sell direct. This is why you're getting screwed if you go to the retailer. So Shark Tank producers, you know, looking for a paddleboard company, they found us out of the blue. You know, when everybody else is applying to be on this show, they're calling us. And that wasn't the first time that's happened to me with the poker chip company because it was a trending sport. Media reached out to us as well. So this is another part of sort of the, the idea of SEO and, you know, link building. It's, you know, have something compelling that people are willing to talk about and those people will come to you a little bit. So anyway, uh, I'd never even seen the show when they called, uh, but I... You know, they said, hey, it's on ABC on Friday nights. And I said, okay, this is a no-brainer. I'd love to go on to it. So I went up to L.A. in about uh, a sequestered hotel for like four days. Um, you know, when you're going and you're pitching to like the production team or whatever. And, and then um, two days before I went on, I learned that Cuban was going to be on the show. That was, it was season three. So that was the first year he was on the show as a guest shark. And so I thought, Phew, I don't really even know who these other guys are at this point, but I, I know who Mark Cuban is. So he became sort of my target. Anyway, the day goes that I'm supposed to go in there um, to pitch to the Sharks. I walk on the stage, get through about a minute of my spiel, go to my slideshow. The clicker button like shoots through all the slides. I sort of freeze up and it's sort of this epic freeze online where I'm silent and then I try to start again and I'm stuttering and stammering. The Sharks are making fun of me. I get called a nerd. I get called a leprechaun. <laughs> I mean, they're just like Kevin to me. Yeah. And this is all, you know, it's live. What you see on TV is basically like a highlight film of what really went on. You know, you'll go in there and pitch for an hour, hour and a half. But it's not like, hey, let's do a retake. You screwed that up. It's you either run out of there crying or you gather yourself and you come back. That's why you see a lot of people like sweating on that show because they just let them sweat it out. Right. Um, so I had to regroup and sort of battle back. And I ended up getting uh, Mark, a deal from Mark Cuban for 150000 for 30% of my company. And in addition to that, he negotiated for first right of refusal to invest in any business that I raise money for in the future. 
And that was a first in the history of Shark Tank. So it was kind of like he didn't even really like the paddle boards, but he's like, I like sort of the, the SEO strategy this guy's going into businesses with. He can probably do this with other stuff. You know, I'm going to bankroll him. And to me, I was like, there's no downside to that because it's, it's just only if I raise money. I could do something else on my own if I want. Don't have to include him. But if I raise money, he gets to trump that offer if he wants. I took that offer and I was just happy to get any offer after um, the whole debacle you know, to start this thing. And so when that, when I made that pitch, when he invested, we had a hundred thousand dollars in lifetime sales for tower paddle boards. Uh, since that pitch, we've done over 20 million. So that makes us one of the best, uh, you know, investments in the history of Shark Tank. Wow. Okay. And so how did, I mean, how did it feel? Uh, you, you talk about a lot of people, you know, sweating all the time and, you know, you stuttering all the, and, and all that. I mean, how did, how did you feel at that moment? I, I'm just trying to get an idea of what was going on inside your head. Well, it was, you know, I, the funny thing is I'm not really, I wasn't nervous going on there. I've done, you know, a lot of public speaking. That doesn't bother me at all. But I have a horrible memory, right? And they wanted, when you go on a Shark Tank, they want you to memorize this, you know, two to three minute initial pitch. And they always sound really cheesy, right? They want you to hype up and do something entertaining and they get a little laugh out of it. But that's just not me. I'm not like an entertainer. Like, so I was horrible at that. And of course, I forgot my pitch in the middle of it because I got stumbled a little bit. Um, and then, so in that moment, I'm just like, oh my God, it was almost an out-of-body experience. Like you just blew it on national TV. And then I'm thinking, because I had a son at the time that was five years old, and I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to see this. His friends are going to make fun of him. Like, you need to pull this together. You're embarrassing your family, basically. And so I was able to uh, just sort of gather myself and start, you know, fighting back. And I, and I got a little pissed off. I'm like, look, you guys clearly don't even understand the paddleboard market. Here's why you need to invest in me. And I even sort of pivoted a little bit and stopped pitching the paddleboards and start, stop, started pitching the idea of just doing a, a business flipping business where I would uh, go in, we'd buy a $10 million business with their, you know, war chests of cash. I'd inject what I knew. And then we'd, you know, flip it and sell it for $30 million a couple of years later. I'm like, I've done this for all these businesses. I can do it for any business out there. And then, so that's really what uh, ended up getting the investment. But as it turns out, the paddle boards was, was a very good business. I mean, in, two years ago, we were named the fastest growing company in San Diego. You know, it's a town of about 3 million people and we're a surf company. We were a surf company with five people in it, and we're doing five million in revenue. And you know, we're at this award ceremony, and they're counting down the fastest growing companies. A lot of VC funded companies and tech companies, and this you know goofy surfboard company is the fastest growing company. <laughs> so we've we've done well. You know, great, great. So what's it like working with Mark Cuban? Uh, it's, it's been very good. You know, the, the reason I when I heard that he was on the show, that I was instantly okay. This guy's money is worth three times everybody else's money is because he was a celebrity that I knew. So I looked at this as less about getting $150,000 investment and more as getting basically a free celebrity endorsement. Uh, so you do due diligence after the show. Like a lot of the deals fall apart because, uh, you know, you can go on there and just lie about your business. They don't know. And it's all live on air. So um, it, when they do the due diligence part, a lot of those deals fall apart. But when we did the due diligence part, I was like, look, Mark, like I want to put your face on a homepage of my website. Are you good with that? And he's like, yeah, I don't got a problem with that. So that's really what I wanted. You know, almost the check with Mark Cuban's name on it uh, was worth more to me than the $150,000 to cash it. Um, because it's a celebrity endorsement, it, it instantly takes our brand, which was completely unknown at the time, and gives it some legitimacy. 
Got it. And that part totally makes sense. My my understanding also, uh, I think you know we've we've also had other uh, Shark Tank guests on, on the show before. Uh, my understanding uh-huh. of of Mark's the way he works is that he has a team that helps out, right? Is is that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, he does have a team. You know, honestly, we don't use his team very much. Um, it's direct communication to him with me, so it's all email communication. You know, I report to him about once a week. Uh, if I have any questions, I can go right to him. He does have, uh, you know, a web guy and you can use his accountant or, you know, marketing guy. But, you know, honestly, we do most of that stuff in-house. Um, so we don't, we don't leverage his team probably as much as we should. Um, you know, but we're doing, we're doing fine on our own. Got it. All right. Great. So wrapping up here, I've got a couple more questions. We talked, to, you, we talked about uh, Dropbox a little bit. What's another tool? What's one tool that you added in the last year that has added a lot of value to your business? Um, we, we added some HR tools. Um, so as we're starting to hire people, I mean, HR in a small company, you don't have an HR department. So um, anything you can do to speed up that process, because basically it just took about half of my time for a month every time we hired somebody, you know, posting on Craigslist, have to sort through 100 resumes and all this stuff. So we use uh, Recruiter Box is a, a great tool for that. Um, it just is a much easier way to manage the hiring process among a team. Um, and it just sort of automatically brings all the people in. So that's a, that's a great tool that saves a lot of time. And I think it's free or it's like 30 bucks a month. Um, and then we use uh, Zenefits. It's almost like a, uh, a central portal of information for all your, you know, your 1040s, your health coverage, your all of that crap, all the paperwork that you usually have to do when you hire somebody on or when they, when they get married or when they change something or you change their salary or any of that crap. It, uh, it gives them an account within this and they just self-serve enter their own information. All your documents that you have to have them sign when they you hire them on are all in there and they control it. So you just load the thing up and then, you know, you go, boom, this person's hired and it puts them through a series of things. And if they move, they change the information in there and they elect what healthcare they want on there. And it just, you know, makes that process seamless. You don't need an HR department really. Um, so that's, that's been, that's been wonderful. But I mean, like I said, honestly, um, you should go to the website, 5hourworkday.com, and get that PDF of these tools. And we sort of put the, the secret sauce out there of these tools. There's one tool called uh, pangiba.com. Have you ever heard of that uh, website, Eric? No. So this is a sourcing tool. It's kind of like in the old days. Well, in the old days, people used to fly to China and take three years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to find, identify good manufacturers and you know, get their product all dialed in, quality and everything. And then it came along um, – Alibaba, right? And then that, okay, that connected, you know, overseas manufacturers with, um, you know, U.S. companies. And that was great. I mean, that was the biggest IPO in the history of the world at the, when, it, when it went live, I believe. So a very valuable company. But the problem there is if you want to make paddle boards, you go into Alibaba, you type in paddle boards, and it shows you, gives you 2,000, you know, responses of people that claim to be, you know, factories that will make this. You know, half of those are fraudulent. Um, just scam artists, you know, maybe five of them are good factories, maybe 15 of them are bad factories, and the other, you know, 450 are uh, some kind of middleman, right? Not really information, because it's information overload. So what Pangeva does, it, it attacks this problem in a little different manner. Um, since 9-11, uh, anything that comes into the country in a container, um, it's public information on, you know, what the weight of that was, uh, what a brief description of the contents, where it came from, address, company name, and where it's going to, address, company name. So you can put in paddleboards, and it'll tell you all the paddleboard shipments over the last five years, and if they're going up or down, 
you know, what factories they're coming from, what customers they're going to. And then you can zero in on a factory and then see who all that factory supplies. And it tells you this data over time. Now, it's not perfect information because this is, you know, scribbles on a, a bill of lading, but it's pretty good information, you know. And so you can you can basically determine you get a quality score on a factory if you know they're providing some of the best brands in the industry and their shipments are going up. That's a good factory. If their shipments are going down or they used to ship for one company and ship to one company and now they no longer do, the problem factory that raises a red flag. And you can even put your competitor's name in there and see who all the factories are that they make all their different products for. It's like magical information. And this site has been around for 10 years. Okay. And I'll go and I'll, you know, I'll talk to, you know, universities and even like, you know, procurement departments. And these students have never heard of this. I'm saying, are you guys kidding me? Like this is, I can literally source in, you know, two to three hours in the afternoon, what used to take people, you know, years and hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, five trips to China. Whoa, that is huge. Okay, we're definitely going to drop that in the show notes, and then we'll link to that, the PDF and everything that you, all the resources that you have for sure. Um, what's, I guess another question would be, and I, you've, you've talked about your book already, but besides your book, what's another book that you'd recommend to everyone? You know, and in the book, I recommend The 4-Hour Workweek. It's a, uh, obviously, the, the title is like a, an homage. <laughs> Some would say a copy. The 4-Hour Workweek was really about entrepreneurs, how to escape from sort of the corporate world and how to you know, sort of apply the 80-20 rule and management by absence. It's a lot of the tools and the techniques. What my book is, is really about how the work world has changed. It's sort of a history lesson on how work has evolved in the world and how we can work differently today. And it, because it's very counterintuitive when I tell people that we work a five-hour day and we're growing faster than you, people don't believe it. But, it, you know, if you, if you realize that if you put this constraint on, it forces you to identify better ways to do things and better tools, like you identify Panjiva if you're a sourcing company and you only have five hours to source with one person. If you have an entire sourcing department and you do stuff the old way, you're still spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, five trips to China and you know years to source stuff. And you're a fool because this has been around for 10 years, but there's no incentive to find this information. So um, this sort of puts out the argument of how we can basically change our entire workday for an entire company, an entire economy, and why this, why this works. And it it's basically just covers the experiment that we're doing in, in our company. As a marketer myself, I have to call out that the way you answered that question was very smart from a PR perspective, so I have to give you applause there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's about it for questions. I mean, this has been fantastic. I think, you know, I definitely want to thank you for sharing your experiences. I, I guess... Um, what's the best way for people to find you online and you know, you, uh, what's the resource that you've been sharing with everyone? Sure. Well, anything about the book, you can go to you know, fivehourworkday.com and you can contact me through there. I'm pretty accessible by email. Um, our you know, paddleboard site is towerpaddleboards.com. Um, with our, our beach lifestyle company, we also have an online magazine. We've got about 50,000 subscribers to that. Um, you'll get two emails a week. It's like videos and articles that anybody that would be interested in the beach lifestyle um, that is at tower.life. Um, and, you know, those are our main properties. Awesome. Great. Stefan, this has been awesome. Hope to connect with you again soon. All right, Eric. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.